Hello everyone, and welcome back to Money Power Health. Today, I have the great privilege of speaking to Rebecca Cassidy, Professor of Social Anthropology at Goldsmiths, on the gambling industry and her experience of working on gambling industry research. Gambling has experienced tremendous growth in recent years, particularly through online and mobile gaming, and is increasingly consolidated globally. Gambling has significant health and social implications for both users and their families, particularly as the industry relies on a small proportion of players for the majority of gambling revenue. Notably, a significant proportion of gambling-related research is industry-funded, as are most academic conferences, despite the clear conflict of interest this poses. Professor Cassidy and her colleagues were among the first to step into these spaces and critically examine how the industry had co-opted gambling research, terminology and outcomes. So besides being something of a hero of mine, her experience and example is relevant to anyone who has to stand up and say the unwelcome but important truth. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Rebecca Cassidy, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi Nason, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. I suppose I wanted to start by asking you how it was that you first became interested in anthropology and anthropology research, especially considering how you've applied it to a variety of different lenses, including uh, the anthropology of gambling, horse racing, and most recently, apples. Sure. Well, um, I know that some academics are able to tell a sort of very logical story about how one thing led to another and there was sort of a rational decision that took place here there I I don't have that sort of seamless progression story to tell um I was actually studying philosophy and um I found it very challenging but also quite um frustrating at times because it was very abstract and to me some of the questions I was asked didn't have real consequences. So I remember one of the essay titles that I was uh, working on when I decided perhaps it was time for a change was something like the the present king of France is dead. You know, examine the truth value of that statement. And I just, you know, I thought there must be more to life than this. So I started to misbehave basically and I was bunking off lectures and not really concentrating. And um, it coincided with a visit to my college by a really talented anthropologist called Steve Hugh-Jones who has remained someone um, who I've taken a lot of inspiration from. And he was talking about his fieldwork with the Barasana in the Colombian Amazon. And I just thought, not only is this person charismatic and smart, he's telling me about, um, you know, the creation of other possible worlds in, you know, concrete manifestations of those worlds. And this is really what I want to learn about. I want to learn about places where things are done differently and I want to learn about new worlds I'm 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 you know this world it seems rather self-indulgent and Euro-American uh, let me get out there um and in particular I was really taken by this idea that for for the people that Steve worked with um there was no there was no single separation between people and animals um there were all different ways of thinking about that. Animals were also subject of lives. They just happened to be in different sort of physical envelopes. 
And it just really, you know, with that moment where you think, wow, I've been so constrained in my thinking. I've become such a sort of dull person, um, you know, and here was Steve and he had with him a snake, a massive snake from the Amazon. You know, all sorts of things conspired to mean that I switched from philosophy um, almost immediately and, and started to actually become excited again about m my studies and yeah, so I was very excited and, and desperate to get out onto field work. So that was my in my third year. So that's how I found anthropology. And I think it's quite similar for lots of people because it's not something we study at school. Yeah, I mean, it's not something, you know, I have, I have sons and um, three sons and, and it's not something that they've, you know, been introduced to at all at school or not something that you really hear as a, you know, you don't hear children saying, yeah, I really want to be an anthropologist. It just doesn't come up that much, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And I really hope that some of the work I'm doing will perhaps contribute to that changing because I really, really believe in anthropology. Um, and I've been so fortunate to be able to study things that interest me through the vehicle of anthropology and to work with colleagues and students who are also you know, investigating questions that are really important to them, using a very broad set of methods and approaches. Um, and I think anthropology can really breathe life into a problem in a way that, you know, other more narrow um, theoretical perspectives, you know, can perhaps um, limit. So, yeah, I'm a great advocate of anthropology and encouraging young people to come along and take a taster or see what it's all about. Oh, for sure. And I guess um, one of my first interactions with anthropology coming from a more bench science background and then transitioning into public health was actually some of your work um, on gambling and the gambling industry, uh, which was really interesting. And I just I guess wanted to ask how you moved from that early interest in, in anthropology, anthropological approaches to studying gambling and gambling research, which to me seems a bit of a far cry from, I guess, what I think of as the archetypal ethnographic research <laughs> in, in some faraway place. Yeah, that's that's quite right. So I, uh, again, this is sort of, I'm going to tell you the sort of the real story rather than the, you know, the I, I could look back and create some narrative about how <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I found this problem and I decided I would need to answer it and or I had this calling. But actually, um, I was working on horse racing um, uh, and I had, my first job had been... Um, as an intern on the Racing Post, actually the daily newspaper for horse racing in the UK. And I really wanted to be a sports journalist at that time. Um, but I also wanted to pursue my interest in anthropology. So I looked around for funding and there was a project where I was supposed to go to Albania that I got the funding for. And Albania then very sadly had a civil war um, and I wasn't allowed to travel. So I became a security guard and <laughs> I was working nights. And in the daytime, a bunch of us security guards would go to the bookies and we would go to Newmarket because we were in Cambridge and we watched the horses training. And I was just, again, I've always been a, a, a person who loved horses and riding. And, uh, 
I didn't know anything about this world, but I was again captured. And so I started to, I went back up to Edinburgh actually, to George Square, which I don't know if you're in George Square at the moment. I am. <laughs> All right. Well, I spoke to my supervisor and she is a brilliant anthropologist called Janet Carsten. And she agreed that I would be better suited to working on horse racing. So let's just do it. And yeah, so I started working on horse racing and betting was part of that, mm -hmm. but it was a very, it was an integral part of that. And so I was looking at gambling as something that was, had a deep history and cultural significance at that time. Um, and it was only later that I started to focus more on gambling. I was primarily interested at that time in ideas about fertility, class, gender, power, you know, mm. as you are. Um, and all of those things came through thoroughbred breeding for me and uncertainty and risk and so on, not really through gambling. So there I was embedded in this world that I loved and um, I then went off to do a postdoc in America about racing in Kentucky and again was working on inequality really and hierarchy and you know the fact that most of the people I was working alongside as a hot walker as it was you know cooling off the horses after they've trained um, riding myself and um, you know, the, the people I was working with are mostly unpapered, undocumented workers mm. who were living in the stables alongside the horses. And the rest of training, you know, was overseen by trainers who lived very privileged lives um, and thoroughbred breeders, of course, who had the resources to, to, to use to breed what they hoped would be champions, which is, as you know, extremely unlikely <laughs> and high risk. <laughs> So it was this kind of conspicuous consumption alongside, you know, people who were very, very sort of poorly resourced. Um, so again, that was my interest in inequality. And it was only really when I got my first job at Goldsmiths and um, there was an advertisement for some funding that that was a moment, that was the moment that I turned to gambling. And it was really because there was money available. And my head of department, who was very savvy, said, you must apply for this money. You know, it's ESRC and Responsibility in Gambling Trust joint programme. And I said, well, what's, uh, do you know what the Responsibility in Gambling Trust is? And he said, absolutely no idea, but it's ESRC. So apply for this. You need to get external funding in order to be taken seriously. I, yeah, and so, you know, I often look back on that and think, you know, who, who, how could I have been advised better? How could I have been better supported? What sorts of questions I could have asked? I was, it was my first funding application outside postdocs. I had no one to advise me really. And it was really, that was where I began to think about gambling itself. And in particular, I looked at the idea of problem gambling and I just couldn't believe that that was the way that people were being described as problem gamblers. And it just was so striking to me that I felt I could contribute something. And I really was 
very naive at that point and I was sort of about to be given a kind of rude awakening or or very rapid education into you know the politics of research funding. Wow I mean well so much to go into here uh, Rebecca and I can already see some some kind of links in terms of what first drew you into anthropology in terms of the creation of new worlds with real impacts and the value of questioning and peeling back assumptions that underpin those worlds um and obviously i guess the concept of a problem gambler being one of those assumptions but i'm just struck that it was a, a kind of an accidental entry into research on what became quite a contentious topic in a variety of ways i mean was there a kind of an aha moment where it shifted for you and could you speak a little bit about your growing realization that doing research on gambling um, would be more than just, uh, you know, observing and describing the nature of, of gambling, but would go deeper to challenging some of the assumptions around gambling and gambling research. The 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 moment um, that really had a, a huge impact on on the way that I thought about gambling and the way that I thought about my own field. And, and when it, the moment that it broadened out to be really gambling research rather than just gambling mm. was uh, when I presented the findings of that funding to the Responsibility and Gambling Trust. And, um, you know, at that time, gambling research was... And actually, you know, it still is rather small. Um, but at that time, it was tiny. And it was very comfortable in its own skin. It was calm. And, you know, people expected uh, to encounter both industry and colleague researchers at conferences. And for, you know, industry to be given a seat at the top table and to be guiding the discussion and... These things were entirely natural in at the time, as as I when I walked into gambling research, which I, you know, learned as one does to, you know, to to find my place in that field, and yeah. I became I would say that field was totally domesticated, to use a, <laughs> a phrase that comes from my my research with animals and plants. You know, it was absolutely self-sustaining and structurally neat and um, efficient yeah and so I, I, I was part of that most certainly um, and the only the only person who was at that time going against the grain was Professor Jim Orford and he would ask at those conferences um, why are we talking about the health of the gambling industry why are we not talking about the health of gamblers mm. and, and he would just be so brave and I remember at the time thinking oh this is so inappropriate I mean can you imagine I, I was so naive um, and I thought wow how does he have the you know the temerity I think not I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought, yes, go, Jim. I was thinking, oh, no, that's just so out of place here. You know, that, mm -hmm. that was my initial feeling. And I, I hope other people who've made mistakes like that can, you know, feel comfortable about 
you know, really what was, what was on my part, a huge failure to recognise that this was a, a leader. This was the person I should be following. And, you know, it didn't take me long, but I do remember those first feeling awkward rather than inspired at first. Um, and it was really when I had my own experiences, so presenting my findings to the RIGT, I walked into a room of industry operator, you know, executives, um, you know, this person's from this company, this person from this company. It was really scary. And I spoke about betting shops um, and I spoke about the problems with the idea of responsible gambling and so on. And one of the questions from an industry executive was, how is this going to make us more money? <laughs> so, <laughs> as, as co-funders of the research. Yeah. So, I mean, he didn't say that, but he just felt entitled to ask that question. You know, the, the, that was the, the, the subtext. Yeah, you're right. And other questions followed, um, you know, that were really quite similar. Um, and as I was leaving, the, one of the senior members of this organisation followed me into the lift and the lift was sort of the slowest lift that I've ever <laughs> ridden. And he said to me, um, you know, you can't speak about your research in public without our written permission. And I said, uh, well, I'm not quite sure that that was what I signed up for. And, you know, perhaps I'll just speak when I think it's appropriate and, and I'll just do that. And perhaps I'll let you know when I've done that or, you know, you can, but I, I don't think I'll be doing, I don't think I'd be asking your permission in writing. Mm. And then we spent this time, you know, this extremely Silence. slow <laughs> lift ride up. <laughs> and I just left that lift and I thought, oh, wow, I have been so thick. Um, you know, uh, it just, I remember on your podcast, Lisa Barrow told a story about how I think Coca-Cola, um, it was reported in the newspaper that Coca-Cola were going to be paying her a lot of attention. And she thought, OK, I need to I need to think about this. And she went on and did that amazing research. Um, and when I left the lift, I thought, uh, you know, what an idiot I'd been and how I had, you know, you know, I'd really failed to see what was critically important about this situation which was the answer to the question that I had, which was, why is research acknowledged as being so weak in this field? And yet, the same studies are repeated, described as weak, and not used in ev as evidence for policymaking, and yet they continue to get funded. You know, and I had never really put the things together until in that moment, I was just brought up short um, against this sort of, this, I was failing to fulfil the structural uh, requirements of this field, mm. and now I my I had this moment where I thought, okay, so this is fundamental to what's happening here. It's no good saying I can be an anthropologist and I can stand outside this. I, I can't. I, I now need to think about gambling research as my object of study and to use what I think are the powerful tools of anthropology to try to unpick and unpack that. Wow. 
I mean, well, this is fascinating, and I think we'll we'll chime with people, you know, many people outside the realm of gambling research specifically, but thinking about finding themselves in conferences, groups of of academic research subcultures. And asking, why are we doing things this particular way? Why is there, you know, like, why is there so much poor quality nutritional epidemiology? And yet, why do we keep doing more, a lot of it funded by industry directly or indirectly? Or or why does the research that I'm being funded to do by pharma seem to be about drug candidates for conditions that already have lots of other treatments um, or why does it tend to involve endpoints that seem to align really well with the marketing messages for that product instead of the endpoints that matter most clinically or the ways in which uh, that might most matter to health systems like affordability or access or conditions with very few treatment options? I think what you're describing is actually something that's prevalent in a lot of science, but is perhaps left unspoken. You know, you, you talk about it as if you were naive and, and sort of slow on the pickup, but it strikes me that actually you were quite, you know, observant and resonated with the bravery, you know, the bravery that you saw in standing up to that, you know, in the room. Yeah. And so my, my reflection is how important it is to be that person who stands up and says, hang on a minute. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, it reminds me of a of um, a story from my childhood. My um, my school was performing a nativity play in church, and we weren't uh, Christian, but you know, it was in Northern Ireland, and we just you know, I was in the play, and we did we did did our thing. But for my youngest brother, it was his first time inside a church. You know, he was a few years old, um, and he was you know with my mom, and they were watching the me in the play. And at some point, there was a collection that went around, you know, for donations for the church or for some charitable cause. And my mom gave my, my little brother some money and he put it in the, he put it in the collection box. And then, uh, you know, the person, the aide or whatever, took the collection box away. And my little brother suddenly realized that he wasn't getting that money back and that <laughs> they were, uh, you know, they were just taking that. And he started screaming at the top of his voice, he's got our money. He's got the money. He's taking it away. <laughs> and uh, my mom was trying to shut him up and kind of hold him back. But he was literally trying to scrabble over her back and shouting and pointing at this guy. He's got the money. And, you know, <laughs> on one level, of course, that that is absolutely ridiculous. But it just it it sort of reminded me a little bit of, you know, something like that sort of shocks you out and makes you reexamine um, well, you know, what are the norms at play here? Like, what are the things that we've become very used to, yeah. but that an, an independent outsider might say, you know, why is it exactly. done this way? Does that make sense? Probably an odd way of, no, totally. of, of linking to that. <laughs> if I, if you, I would have tried to convert him to anthropology had I known. So, yeah, he sounds like, a, you know, so many things we we do because we see you know, they, they have a, they are ritualized, they're part of everyday life. And so we're encouraged to take them for granted. And that's exactly what anthropology is good at doing, saying, hang on a second, how is it that, you know, th this person gets the money and not me? Or, you know, how is it that everyone's willingly giving this stuff away? I don't get it. it it's, it's, it's really good. And it, I, it, it took me, it took me a while, as I say, but I, 
I also think that then I started to pay more attention to, um, you know, comments between researchers where they would speak about pressure from from industry, from colleagues, and often it would be um, sort of nudges, uh, but also, you know, something else I've written about, limits on access to data. Mm. So I remember when I went, when I got funding from RIGT ESRC, I thought, well, one of the good things about that is that I will get access to betting shops. Yeah. And so I went to the RIGT and I said, okay, I'm ready to start. Which betting shops am I allowed to go in? And they said, well, absolutely none. And they don't want you going into, into betting shops because it's, they're, they're just rolling out these machines called fixed odds betting terminals. And they are going to be massive and they don't want anyone in there, mm. you know, looking at what's happening, basically. And so, again, you know, in a, in a sort of series of serendipitous connections, which I hope early career colleagues might find helpful you know I asked for access to betting shops for about three years you know I just begged all of the mm -hmm. operators and it was actually at a conference uh, that I was attending where the operators were speaking and the guy sitting next to me was being really critical of them and he was sort of yelling at them and, um, you know, eventually he turned to me and was kind of, who are you, and who are you? What are you doing here? Sort of thing. Oh, God. <laughs> and I said, you know, I, I'm an anthropologist. I really want to work in betting shops. And he said, well, um, but, and I said, but, you know, none of the big operators will allow me to go in them. And he said, well, you can come in mine. My enemy's enemy is my friend. You know, <laughs> and he just, he just wanted to be disruptive. And um, he thought this was one way of doing it. And... So he said, in you come, and that was how I started working in betting shops. You know, on the other hand, I had been to speak to the Trade Association of Betting Shops, uh, representing uh, owners of betting shops. And, um, you know, the nudges there I had experienced were, oh, it's so great that you're an anthropologist. So you'll be able to write about, you know, all the important social interactions that take place in betting shops and <laughs> how wonderful they are as at the centre of the community and, you know, how people flourish in their environments and stuff. And I thought, wow, this is really, I mean, I do, I did work on some of those things. And I think some of those things are really useful observations you know betting shops are really complex and interesting spaces and i try to preserve that complexity in my work mm. but to have it rammed down my throat in that sort of <laughs> uncomplicated way was again another moment when i thought wow you really think that i'm going to write about this because you've prompted me to to do mm. that this is really worrying and so that's when yeah i started to talk to colleagues and you know off the record they would tell me really worrying things about how their their research was shaped by the industry and at that time it was you know RIGT became some other set of letters and then I think it became it's now gamble aware and you can see how its names changed over time and they had representation of industry on their boards um, and gradually over time they have 
changed that membership so that they have reduced industry representation. It's my understanding that they've now reduced that to nil. Um, however, you know, the legacy of representation and, and the, the time when I was coming up, it was, it was, you know, there was a person there who was, who wore a lot of hats for the gambling industry and for Gamblerware as was. And it was during the time of Fobties. And mm. so you had someone in an absolutely key position determining the research agenda. Um, and, you know, arguing for the legitimacy of machines that were basically um, roulette. I don't know if you ever saw them or, or ha had an opportunity to use the them. The fixed odds betting yeah. terminal machines. I yeah. have not used one. Right. Well, um, yeah, don't, don't recommend it. Um, you know, it's, it, it, you know, for most of the people who I was working with in the industry at that time, it was total anathema to what it was that they had been selling, admittedly, mm. in the past. Um, you know, the traditional betting uh, operators were working on horse racing, primarily, and then dog races filling the gaps between horse mm -hmm. racing. But they worked on the basic logic that about 40 events each day was a kind of sensible um, offering in a shop so that people had time to reflect and think about their next bet and yeah. on they would go. And then you had this moment where people from outside betting said, you're stymied by all of this tradition and culture. When it comes down to it, all you need to do is to provide as many opportunities to spend money, i.e. to bet, as you possibly can in any period of time. And really, what are the limits of that? Absolutely none. Yeah. So instead you of, of, you know, this sort of rich tradition, if you like, of, ra of, of betting on horse racing, which was where I came from, it was totally, you know, usurped by um, what, was, what, what I would call gambling in contrast to betting. Mm. So you've reached this realisation where there are problems beyond, you know, the specific topics you're covering and you're, you're starting to think of gambling research itself as an objective of study, as an objective worth exploring further. But what happens next? I mean, I'm just curious in, in some of the work you did that followed and how one approaches such a something like that, so vast and potentially problematic. You know, when you step back and you say, I'm actually going to look at what's driving this or what's problematic about this um, yeah. and make myself potentially even less popular in those rooms that I felt mildly uncomfortable in before. Oh, I, I, I didn't know the heights of unpopularity that I could reach. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I was really fortunate in getting um, in, I think it was, um, I think it was 2010, I got, I applied for and secured a, a European Research Council starting grant. And that gave me five years of absolute independence. And the, the uh, head of the ERC at the time was extremely keen that we should pursue projects that were high risk, and, you know, absolutely not guaranteed to contribute to impact, for example. So whereas the ESRC was going one way, as you know, 
all onto impact, whether that would be economic or social. You know, can you say exactly the ways in which this is going to benefit UK PLC or, yes. you know, you know, they, they, they were really on, on that at that moment in time. And the ERC was completely the opposite. It was saying, what is it you think might be important or interesting to work out? What's, what's a problem? You know, and we might not be able to answer it in the course of this project, but, but that's what we want you to think about. Um, and so I, I said, you know, that I wanted to use anthropology to look at gambling as a global phenomenon and as a commercial phenomenon, mm. uh, not just a social phenomenon, um, but to also to keep all of those sorts of pathways going at the same time, to be a sort of cumulative, uh, multidisciplinary, long-term um, comparative. And, and really the idea of that was just to open up what I thought was just such a parochial field mm. um, to these sorts of other disciplines, other ways of doing things. Because, you know, I think the whole point of my work and, and Vicious Games in particular was to say there is nothing natural about this particular gambling industry that we have here. Mm. <laughs> and the failure to kind of ever treat it as a historical entity is is part of suggesting that it's natural you know it came mm. from nowhere it came already fully fledged it didn't it was part of a series of decisions that policymakers took um, in the late 90s early 2000s and we've chosen it and that means we're free to change our minds and choose yeah. something else so it was that kind of opening up um, that I wanted to do and as part of that it literally wasn't, you know, the primary aim, but I just felt we can't leave unspoken all of the um, really serious limitations on research that I feel are actually determining the field. They're more important than anything else. Mm -hmm. And so I decided with my um, postdocs, Andrea Pisak and Claire Luswan, let's go and interview people and see what they'll tell us about research. And we interviewed, I think it's 106 or 109 people. And what we found was so consistent. Mm. Um, you know, it, it told a really coherent story. Um, and also what we did was we just used loads of diagrams because we felt that policymakers were just impossibly kind of busy and resistant to reading papers so mm. we came up with this sort of report called fair game which has cartoon-like images in it um, and it contains loads of quotes from people who are actually working in this in this really tricky field and it it, it was it was a first step if you like towards saying let's have this difficult conversation I knew it wouldn't be um, you know let's solve this problem but it was just, I, I felt like I didn't ever want a, a, a person coming into this field to ever be in the same situation as me, you know, completely green and mm. uninformed. So, you know, they maybe because of the work of Claire and Andrea and myself, maybe they, they can just have a look at that and think, OK, this is this is what this field looked like in 2014. And there are things I should understand about it before I plunge into it, and I'll be better off for it. Mm, as in terms of the ways in which the field had been shaped and by whom. And again, unpicking some of those 
you know, unexamined assumptions um, about it. Um, could you reflect on some of the what you would describe as the main headline findings from uh, the, the the Fair Game report and what what it what the response to it was? I mean, was the response to it what you thought it would be, or did it surprise you? Well, I think what it did was to show that. So the headline findings would be that people who received funding from um, directly from the industry or from uh, organisations who acted as intermediaries for voluntary contributions felt obliged to industry to uh, answer questions that were important to them. So, mm -hmm. you know, it varied, but some researchers said, "I, you know, they've paid for this research they have a right to, um, inf not, they wouldn't use the word influence, to tell me what, I, what they want to know. <laughs> so some were totally straightforward in that way. Others, and this was, you know, a field like many others where men of a certain age dominated, senior mm. male colleagues, they suggested that, yes, the funding came from industry but because they were so skilled and had and and their integrity was unquestionable and therefore this wasn't a problem right so so you know there were a, a few different responses and then there were the younger early career researchers who said to me things like you know I, I've who had had similar experiences to myself I took funding I'm not sure what to do about it or whether mm. I'm, you know, what, how to manage it. And um, I don't know whether I should take f funding in future. And, and that's a really, really difficult question. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I think those were, the, those were the sort of main findings. And the response was, oh, I got, I think I remember thinking we should never serve food again when we do a report launch because I got absolutely sprayed with quiche. I remember I was cornered in a room, and I, you know, I'm. It, it's it seems it seems entertaining now, but it really, you know, I, I, it was pretty unpleasant at the time. Mm. You know, I got kind of people were very angry with me, and you know, they they disagreed with the analysis um although um i must say and again as lisa says lisa barrow said in her interview you know times do change and in some ways you just have to wait um and i i i'm glad we did it and i'm i think that there were people who've benefited from it and that's probably you know the most um sort of gratifying part of it is that it's been useful i think Yes, and, and useful in what ways? In in terms of exposing those like challenging relationships and biases to a wider group of of people, in spite of it being maybe uncomfortable at the time. Yeah, but but also of um, starting the foundations of new careers on different terms, starting mm. from a position of knowledge, and then you can make active decisions about what challenges you take on. Um, you know, I wouldn't dream of making decisions for early career scholars, but at least I really prefer that they were informed yes. by, you know, the experiences of the people who've gone before them. Yes. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. But I'm I'm 
I mean, I know, I, I can tell, I mean, so um, listeners aren't aware, but we can see each other, you know, even though it's a, it's on a, uh, you know, the podcast is, is audio only. And I can tell that even now that was like a really uncomfortable experience, like a, um, a perhaps lonely experience. I mean, you're also doing this with junior colleagues who you've made part of this. I was just wondering um, if you could talk about what it feels like to do something like that. Um, you know, what it felt like as you prepared for the that event, that launch event, and what it felt afterwards yeah it, it, you're quite right it is it's um possibly one of the most difficult things i've done but actually uh, there were worse times in my career in gambling research as well and partly um that's because the field itself is not only challenged from by industry pushback but also internally very competitive and sometimes territorial, I would say. Mm. Um, and so some of, although I have been, you know, stared down by members of the industry and, you know, sometimes um, intimidated and sometimes sent sort of, I think, messages designed to make me feel uncomfortable about mm. continuing with my research... I've also had real pressure put on me from people who you might expect to be allies. Right. And I think that's a story that maybe it's useful to share, even though it's not very comfortable for me to admit it. You know, so I, for example, um, not published things because I've sent them to colleagues or for peer review or to lawyers mm -hmm. um, in my university. And as you know, the um, line for defame, defamation and, you know, we have had in the past, not now, but in the past, libel tourism in the UK because of our, um, you know, extreme protection of people's reputations, such that, you know, even making a comment that could be commercially um, unhelpful to corporate entities can be a problem here. Mm. And so I had, I have had risk-adverse advice from the people who are supposed to be supporting me um, and from peers and colleagues who don't want me to, in inverted commas, rock the boat. Mm. And, you know, sometimes I felt as though, and I'm sure other people have been in this position, but, you know, as though I'm, I'm you know, I'm not helping anyone, even though you're trying to do what you think is best for the field yeah. and best for the people who are most you know harmed by the practices that you see going on and you tell yourself that but actually in your everyday life you actually feel as though you're letting everyone down and that can be really uh, a painful experience and very demotivating and um very lonely as you say so i think anyone who comes into it um you know, needs to know that I think being challenged in that way is part of making progress in the same way as, you know, you might expect pushback from industry. You, you also have to prepare yourself for pushback from colleagues who aren't, don't benefit from the lines of inquiry that you're taking. And that can be equally painful and possibly yeah. more painful. Wow. I mean, well, thank you so much for sharing that 
that reflection. I think just as your fair game report, as you mentioned, your fair game report did, I think even speaking about the this this um, openly is equipping other people with the knowledge of what can happen. You know, like what are some of the consequences of impactful research, particularly where you almost have these like deeply embedded problematic roots and there's no way around the pain of pulling them up and examining them. Yeah, thank you for the arboreal metaphor now that you know I'm working on apples. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there is, I think there is certainly something um, to that. I mean, this is, I, I'm conscious of time and I do want to take some time to, to first of all say that um, I think the work you've done is heroic and to me it represents, you know, the best of what research is supposed to be. It's supposed to bear witness to the forces that shape the world around us. It's supposed to do that in a way that helps people, you know, that help that that benefits society. Yeah. And that is at times really uncomfortable, you know, yeah. <laughs> for, for, yeah. for certain people, certain groups. And um, but it's at the core of the nexus of money and power and health is is having is doing that awkward work. So I think it's it's fantastic and it's definitely been inspirational to me and I know the other colleagues that I've worked with and, and May, who you co-wrote the, the chapter in our book on gambling, uh, the gambling industry, I know has, has, has gained a lot from it. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions or, or reflections for early career researchers, but first I wanted to talk about your exit from gambling research because you, you did, you were embedded in this world and you did this research that was in some ways, you know, groundbreaking but also uncomfortable as you mentioned in personal ways um what talk, if you could talk a little bit about your transition into um apples <laughs> <laughs> um what your reflections on that and then maybe on that basis we could talk a little bit about advice you might have for early career research you know as they make these kind of decisions yeah sure and so again it wasn't i i it wasn't a sort of plan as such <laughs> But I was very happy to step away from gambling. At that, uh, there was a moment in time when I, you know, it's not just about, um, you know, it being tough. Although I actually, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not, I don't, I don't relish the pushback. I actually, you know, I, I, I dreaded it actually, and mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy it, and it didn't push me on. I actually found it made me quite anxious so yeah. I think that's okay as well um, you know as a response to pushback um, if any other people are experiencing that now I can totally relate I I had a had a stint as head of department in at Goldsmiths and in, in anthropology and uh, I had a sabbatical at the end of that and I wrote an application um, to try to think about the same things that interest me, uncertainty, risk, fertility, heredity, how we imagine the world works in terms mm. of passing properties from one generation to the next. Um, and I wrote it about apples because I live in Kent and all of the apple orchards are being grubbed. And so I sent that off and was lucky enough to get that. And it was explicitly a chance to say, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to sort of think about something new, just really to occupy myself. Because I think in one of the problems in gambling is that people become 
very siloed and very yeah. comfortable thinking about the same set of issues in the same ways. And for myself, although I felt as though I wasn't necessarily always going with the grain, in fact, I felt almost, you know, I hope I was going against the grain mm. of what I of what I encountered there, you know, led by people like Jim Orford. Um, I I still found myself utterly boring. It was just repetitive, and it was I wasn't being I wasn't having an impact. I didn't feel, although now one can argue that the the discourse has changed quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but you know, I really wouldn't claim that as a I don't think any of us should claim these outcomes, you know, as we do in our impact case studies, you know, because what really changes gambling policy is events and politics. And, you know, we all do our very best, I know, to influence those. But in the case of gambling, it's really not evidence based. So, you know, you, you sort of, you're, you're arguing that and yet you're carrying on doing research. Well, you know. <laughs> I, I sort of felt I felt fake and I decided I mean I just had this amazing opportunity to go and learn about a totally new set of processes and really to try and rejuvenate myself mm. and you know I, I think I'll always be interested in gambling as well um, you know particularly as you mentioned the stuff in in the United States is absolutely you know terrifying um, uh, to see what they're going through right now and I feel as though that will be you know, something that I, I definitely want to spend time thinking about. But right now, I just felt I don't want to hear myself saying the same things, being ignored and understanding why I'm being ignored. I need to move on and come back and have find some different way of getting at these problems. Um, yes. Yeah, so that was, you know, that was my move to Apple's um, and I guess you asked me about advice to early career people and whether there's something in that for them. I think there is. I think, you know, you must always, um, you know, look at what it is you're fascinated by and what you think is important. But having said that, I am really aware how that is advice from someone who has lived through a much easier generation than my students now for example and mm. so I think my advice you know you know I used to go through the usual early career researcher advice of you know make wide networks collaborate be interdisciplinary and all of those things and now I actually feel like probably the best people to guide other early career researchers are their peers you know I learn so much from my students about mm the new world that we inhabit as academics, you know, resource poor, um, very much influenced by um, agendas that are, you know, newsworthy or whatever they might be, you know, how to resist those pressures is, I think, something new to people of my generation. And so my real advice is to um, work together to recognise the structural problems that shape your world, as, as I did in my generation, and find solutions to them collectively. So something like Ranges, the um, early career researcher network in gambling, you know, I would encourage people to pull together, work together, support each other, don't fall into the same traps as we did in my generation, you know, and tell us how it's done so we can be shown to be redundant and obsolete. That's what I'd hope for. No, I think that's 
a really powerful reflection. And I think, gosh, I feel like we could have an old, a whole other episode on managing that tension of, of feeling like you're working on something that you care about a lot, but feeling powerless and almost disappointed with <laughs> everything that you do in that and that you're letting everyone down within that in part because of how much you care about it. And on the flip side, this the these kind of old ways of thinking about impact and linking our work to impact versus the reality of what actually changes systems and structures um, is something I think that everyone, not just early career researchers, but everyone should think about. And I think especially when we're dealing with issues like the commercial drivers of health, right? Um, there isn't going to be a simple, well, I'm going to do this grant and then it's going to have this impact and then we're going to solve the multi-dimensional <laughs> influence of commercial actors on on research or on, uh, on you know on on policy, um, and and in fact, I think even what you've talked about the the impact of of interpersonal exchanges, of standing up to people in a lift, or giving an uncomfortable presentation in person or refusing to do something, or offering braver advice to a peer who's wondering whether they can step outside their comfort zone and maybe publish a paper that, that might be more challenging. You know, these are all silent ways and ways of being and working that can be hugely impactful. Um, I think you've kind of demonstrated some of those. Does, does that make sense? Well, it does when you put it like that. Thank you, Nason. <laughs> it's certainly it's turned into a, a, a therapy session as well for me. So, very welcome one, I must admit. Well, I, I, well, I want to. I want to. Um, no, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I've learned a lot, and I very much. I'm already looking forward to our next conversation, even if it's not recorded. <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to um, end by asking you one final question, which is. There's something I've noticed in a few of these uh, conversations, and I feel it a little bit in myself, and I, I sense a little bit in you, in that there are advantages and disadvantages to feeling like an outsider in these kind of spaces. I mean, there are big disadvantages when it comes to comfort and feeling peer support and feeling, you know, the, the assumptions about shared values that we all hold. But there are advantages in being able to do what you described anthropology as being very good at, as questioning assumptions and deconstructing, like peeling back the layers um, of the onion. Well, what is your advice to, to people just starting out? What are the skills, what are the ways of working that have helped you do that? Does that make sense? That have helped you yeah. step by and dwell in that outside space? Yeah. I think um, anthropology for some people is just critique. Um, mm -hmm. So I had the most um, amazing teachers, um, people like um, Marilyn Strathern, the anthropologist who encourages you to think about what is a relationship. Mm. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> let's just take, let's just go down to absolute foundational levels. What does it mean to think? What does it mean to classify the world in a certain way? What are the decisions that we're making all the time that silence some areas of inquiry and amplify others? 
you know, if, if we're all thinking critically, then there don't need to be any outsiders performing that role. You know, it, it's really... So I think those are the... I mean, I think also when we're starting out in a field, we have two sort of instincts, as it were. You know, one is to conform and one is to think, you know, this is rubbish. I could do this so much better. You know, I remember that sort of arrogance. And I think both sides need to, you know, we need to encourage our, the people coming into our field to really retain that sense mm. of, you know, just criticism and and openness and you know that that you know just that sort of naive question of why yeah why are you doing it like that why are you doing it like that and it, it, it's I guess it's what we encourage with our students as well and it's just the fact that we lose we're, we're encouraged to lose that that sort of a, a rough edge that's brushed off us and rounded up so that we can fit into these cultures that we've been talking about and if we can actually, um, you know, try to find spaces that can preserve those uncomfortable conversations, that, I guess, would be the way to go forward. Fantastic. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much for speaking to me. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Nason. Great to see you. Hope we'll speak again soon. Take care. Well, that's it for another episode of Money Power Health. A huge thanks to my guest, Professor Rebecca Cassidy, for being so honest and open and giving of her time and her reflections in doing research on a difficult topic uh, at a particularly sensitive time. I hope this was useful uh, to you. It certainly was for me in thinking through what it takes to do truly disruptive research and to take a step back and ask why it is that we're doing the things we are doing and what powers we are serving versus uh, threatening in those spaces. As always, if you have any uh, recommendations for future episode topics or guests, please feel free to uh, message me. I look forward to sharing future episodes with you and I'll leave Charlie to uh, read the credits. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a rating. It helps other people find it. The music in this podcast was by Daniel Manny. You can find more information about his music in the show notes. This announcement was read by the very talented Charlie Manny.